Well, this time I want to introduce our preacher for this morning. Joe Gruy is going to take the pulpit. I'd ask he and Hannah to go ahead and come up now. I want to introduce him to you maybe more than I have in the past. Joe is one of four brothers, uh, three of which the three brothers are here. They are, Joe is, uh, the, the three brothers are sons of Dar and Vicky, who you know uh, really well. Uh, Joe is married to Hannah, and they have two daughters, Pearl and Lena. And Joe graduated from the Master's Seminary, where I graduated as well, the two of us brothers down there on campus, and, and Joe served in the Spanish ministry down there for years. And he's been tied to Spain for a number of years, and it's their desire, because he and Hannah are both fluent in Spanish, and, and what a delight to see their hearts. Their desire is to take off and serve the Lord in Spain. And so that's what their hearts have been set on for quite a while. Well, before Joe preaches, it's, it's really a blessing and a blessed time for us as a congregation to make this acknowledgement, to, to make an announcement. And the announcement is that God is all about holiness, and holiness is, is in going. You see the going of God and the holiness of God in his going through his son to earth to rescue us. You see the holiness of God in, in the great commission that Christ would send each and every one of us. And so this is part of holiness, and the leadership of CBC has decided to come alongside of Hannah and Joe in their going in this demonstration of God's holiness to Spain. And so it is our, our delight to be able to share this with our body of believers. We, we have a high vision, a high view of missiology, missions, sending, being sent, going into this world with, uh, to the lost, to reach the, the lost in this world with the message of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We want to be a support to them physically, in person, because we love these guys, and they're going to need to see us. They're going to need to have us wrap our arms around them, but financially and prayerfully. And so I ask you to, to continue to look to do that, and we as a church will look to do that. And certainly if you need to pick up a conversation with Joe and Hannah about how you might be able to come alongside their ministry as well, that would be much appreciated, and they would certainly love the opportunity to share with you all that they have going on. I encourage you to do that. And so it is the case that we will we'll be looking to support them financially as they look to take off, even this summer. We only have a few more months with them. Joe's committed to preaching uh, here at CBC for the next, the end of the next uh, two months in a row. So it's beginning today is three. And so we thank, th thank them for that. But it is a real delight to say, brother, sister, we encourage you. We support you. It's our desire to join and partner with you. Yeah. So I want to pray, to pray for you to that end. So let's do that. Father God in heaven, thank you for Joe. Thank you for Hannah. Thank you for the way in which you've conditioned and raised them uh, to be so mindful of the need of your gospel to be presented to the lost around this world. They take the Great Commission very, very seriously. It's something you've impacted their hearts personally to go to Spain and to take their young family and to make this considerable investment in this move for your kingdom. And Lord, we join them in that. We pray, Lord, for the, the power of your ministry to be present in their lives, in their hearts, filling them with joy and comfort and peace as they make this transition, this incredible step. Lord, we pray for all the financial provision that you can give to them as they, as they march off into this road. Lord, supply their needs. You've already done that. We ask you to do that even more. And Lord, we pray for the prayerfulness of our body of believers and all the churches that continue to support Joe, that they would be prayerful for this ministry, that they would keep them in the forefront of their mind and present them to you, Lord, as, as brothers and sisters in Christ who need to be sanctified, made righteous, delivering righteousness into this world. So, Lord, thank you for Joe and Hannah, for their hearts, and for the ability to come alongside of them in ministry and support them and encourage them. And so with our, with our token, with our offering to them, and with our prayers, we pray that they will be well sent on their way for this work that you have prepared for them. Open all the doors, make it happen to the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.
Well, with that, I'll leave the pulpit to Joe, and we'll be blessed by his discussion on holiness. Joe, would you preach the word to us? Um, what, a, what a sweet thing for us to be here today. Uh, we, we love you guys as a church. We've been so encouraged by all of you. Uh, and as you've just embraced us in our uh, transition back from seminary as we've settled in here. So we're so thankful for each and every one of you, thankful to know you're praying for us and partnering with us in the gospel. And it is, we feel humbled by, by the privilege it is to serve the Lord uh, in the way that we're, we're going to in Spain. So like Oliver said, if you have any questions for us or want to know a little bit more about what we're doing or want to receive our monthly updates, we'd love to uh, hear from you about that and, and have a conversation with you. Well, to start out with this morning, we came to hear from God and from His Word. So you can open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're not going to spend much time there. Uh, Oliver mentioned that the best way to study through the Bible is through consecutive exposition, and Oliver has been showing us how that's done in Ephesians. But this morning, we're not going to do that. We're going we're gonna to do something different, and we're going to take up one theme today, which is the holiness of God. And this is really a theme and, and a reality that can't be seen in any one given text because it's massive. God's holiness is really the Mount Everest of Scripture because it is the single most defining characteristic of God. It's His holiness. So let's pray and ask the Lord's help as we come to His Word this morning. God, we thank You for this opportunity to be here together to worship You, to know You. Thank You for Your work in our lives. And we just pray that You would open our hearts this morning to understand, give us understanding of your holiness so that we would be holy as you are holy. Thank you. I pray that you would strengthen me to proclaim your word with clarity and give us ears to hear. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're looking at God's holiness and it is what is most clearly seen about God in Scripture, His holiness. Exodus 15.11 says, Who is like you among the gods, O Yahweh? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? What distinguishes God from all the other gods, little g, is the majesty of His holiness. It so characterizes God that in Isaiah 57.15, He says that His name is holy. And that's not simply that His name is a holy name. It means His name is holy. So that he is known throughout the Bible as the Holy One more than any other title. It's been rightly said by A.W. Tozer, and men, you heard this from Mark Graham last week, that what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And when we think about God, according to the Scriptures, what should come to our mind is God's holiness. So there are several reasons why I want us to look at God's holiness today. And the first is simply that if this is who our God is, then we have to properly understand His holiness in order to know Him like we ought. Second, a proper understanding of God's holiness in evangelical Christianity has often been neglected or limited 
or poorly defined. For some, holiness means just a continual list of do's and don'ts, things you can't do. That's what makes you holy, like the list of food in Leviticus that that the Israelites weren't allowed to touch or eat. And so for some, holiness is a boredom. it's It's a burden. For others, holiness is only something for a group of spiritual elites. Just a few people, and they're the holy ones who have no contact with the real world, as some would say. And those who genuinely seek to live a holy life are are labeled legalists and told to lighten up a little bit. For others, they've been rightly taught that God's holiness is His preeminent attribute, but we aren't able to define it well. And when holiness is defined, it's often limited to mean His transcendence or His moral purity. So there's a need for us to understand God's holiness. And that leads me to a third and primary reason that we are studying God's holiness today. And that is that God has told us, He's commanded us, that we are to be holy as He is holy. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. Peter says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And it couldn't be more clear. We are to be holy. But note what Peter says. He says, we are to be holy like the Holy One who called us is holy. So if we're to obey that command even, it's vital that we understand God's holiness so we can reflect that in our lives. But there's a final reason I've felt burdened to look at God's holiness today. And that is because of the context of these commands in 1 Peter. 1 Peter was written to a group of churches in Asia Minor, most likely just after intense persecution broke out against Christians under Emperor Nero. And Christians were ostracized at that time for not participating in the immoral pagan idolatry And then when Nero started a fire that consumed a massive portion of Rome, the Christians became the scapegoat and a massive persecution broke out against the church. And so Peter wrote this letter in order to encourage these believers undergoing this extreme persecution so that they would be strengthened to live faithful, joyful lives in the midst of fiery trial. In chapter 1, Peter gives two ingredients for that faithful living. The first is to know the riches and the glories of what we have in Christ, that we have been elected by Him to salvation, chosen by the Father. We've been born again and we have an inheritance waiting for us in heaven. Doesn't that strengthen you to know that as you face trials? And so in verse 13, he calls the believers to fix their hope on the grace that will be revealed to them when Christ returns. And Oliver has been helping us to do that in Ephesians as we understand what it means that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places has been given to us. But his second command is the one we just read. His second command to this church facing trials so that they would persevere in joyful, faithful obedience to God is that they must live holy lives. 
what we need in order to endure persecution faithfully is not a a playbook for political recourse. What Peter is saying we need when we're facing persecution is to live holy lives. The Scriptures tell us that things are going to go from bad to worse in the world and that all who wish to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, 2 Timothy 3.12. And the lines are being drawn in our society. Oliver mentioned this Equality Act. Those who speak out against homosexuality or transgenderism as a sin against God are ostracized or canceled. They lose their livelihood and are fined. In Australia already, if you even pray with someone who is fighting homosexual desires, you would go to jail. And it certainly looks like that's waiting for us. Moreover, a wide-scale persecution of Christians in the U.S. is on the horizon right now, just across the border in Canada. A pastor is in jail for doing just what we're doing here today. Persecution is on the doorstep both at a personal and national level. And this is a time to be alert spiritually to what's going on around us. Persecution is coming. So my question is, what do you need to stand firm? What do you need to stand firm when persecution comes? How will you keep from compromising when all that it takes to keep your job is to call a him a her? What will keep you from compromise in the face of arrest if all you have to do is say that you won't gather to worship, you'll just do it by Zoom? If all of us here at CBC are going to stand firm for the Lord Jesus Christ, what is it that will cause us to live uncompromising, joyful, faithful Christian lives, even in the most severe persecution? And thankfully, Peter gives us that answer. It's to be holy as God is holy. That's what we need. But if we have a wrong view of God's holiness, if we think it is just a list of do's and don'ts, that won't give us the spiritual strength that we need to stand firm in trial. And so we need to understand God's holiness. And the burden of my heart today is that by the power of the Spirit, we will grow to understand God's holiness, which can prepare us for persecution. So we're going to start by defining holiness. What is holiness? We're going to look at what holiness looks like in God, what it means that God is holy, and we're going to work through some headings. So our first one is this. We're going to define holiness. What is biblical holiness? Holiness is everywhere in the Bible. The words for holy are used nearly 700 times in the Old Testament and nearly 300 in the New Testament. And most commonly, holiness is thought of in terms of God's moral perfection. He's far from sin, right? Oliver mentioned that earlier. And in terms of God's transcendence, like Isaiah 6, where God is seated on His throne above everything in glory. And if you think about holiness in either of those ways, you're right, but only in part. That's not a full picture of what holiness is. Those are results of God's holiness. They aren't holiness in its entirety. So what is holiness? The Hebrew root word kadosh means simply to cut or separate. And in the Greek, it is the word hagios, which is translated either as holy or consecrated or sanctified. But they both convey the same idea. The words indicate that something has been set apart or cut from the rest. 
And it's not just the idea that it's set apart, but that it is set apart to God. In other words, a holy thing is that which God sets apart and consecrates to Himself. God is the author of holiness. We can't make ourselves holy. So to be holy is to be set apart by God for God. And holiness also conveys a purpose. It is to be set apart by God for God for service to Him and ultimately for His glory. And as we look through the Scriptures, that is the meaning of holiness. It's not just moral purity. It's not just God's divine transcendence, although those are included. Holiness holiness by definition is to be set apart by God for total devotion to God, His purposes, and His glory. I'll repeat that. Holiness is to be set apart by God for total devotion to God, His purposes, and His glory. And in the Scriptures, God has shown us vividly what it looks like when a created thing is holy. So after we've seen that definition of holiness as being set apart by God for devotion to God and His glory, let's see if that stands up when we look at created things. There's a massive amount of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, that give examples of holiness, and we're only going to look at a couple. We won't go through all of Leviticus, so don't worry. That's where Bible reading plans go to die. But, but it's massive what God teaches us there about His holiness. But let's just first look at the first place that holiness, that word, appears in the Bible. And it's in Genesis 2-3. God has finished creation. And Genesis 2 says that after God had created everything, He rested on the seventh day. And Genesis 2-3 says, Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. He made it holy. That's the word we're looking at, holiness. What does that mean? Exodus 16 tells us that it is a day of solemn rest, holy to the Lord, set apart for God and His worship. Exodus 31 tells us that because the Sabbath was holy to God, it served His purposes as a sign of the covenant with Israel as His holy people. So what it meant for the Sabbath to be set apart was to be holy, was to be set apart and devoted to God and His purposes so that He would be glorified. The same is true with Israel as a nation. right? In, in Exodus 19, verses 5-6, through six, after bringing Israel out of Egypt, God establishes His covenant with Israel and He says, You shall be My treasured possession among the peoples, for all the earth is Mine. And so, Out from among all the nations, God chooses Israel. He sets them apart. And He says, You shall be to Me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A holy nation. What made Israel holy? We've read the Bible. We know it wasn't that they were morally superior than the other nations. We know it wasn't because they were greater in number. God tells us that. What made them holy? It was the fact that God had set them apart for Himself and devoted them to His glory. That's the purpose God declares for them in Jeremiah 13.11, saying, He has set them apart that they might be for me a people for renown, for praise, and for glory. And the commandments He gave them, all of those were to bring about God's glory. The first commandment, think about it, I am Yahweh your God, you shall have no other gods before me. 
So Israel was set apart for the sole, exclusive worship and glory of God. That's what it meant for them to be holy. And we can go on and on with examples. We won't. But when we look at Israel's worship, there's things like tables and lampstands and curtains. And there are common men like the Levites. And there's mountains like Mount Sinai where God met with Moses and said, take off your sandals for this place is holy ground. And in every case, these are ordinary things that God sets apart for Himself and then uses them for His glory. They're devoted to Him and His glory. That's what it means to be holy. Set apart by God. Totally devoted to God's glory. That's what holiness is. So that leads us to our our second point here. We need to now define God's holiness. God's purpose in showing us holiness in the created things that we just saw was so that we would know what it means that He is holy. It's a picture of what it means that He is holy. He tells us many times, this priest, this sacrifice, this garment, this mountain, this day shall be holy, for I am holy. Holiness in the created things then points us to God's holiness. So if holiness in the created things is to be set apart and totally devoted to God and His glory, then that definition doesn't change when we use it, applying it to God. We don't say that holiness in the created things is this total devotion to God, and yet God's holiness is limited to His moral perfection or transcendence. That's like saying that exercise for you is going on a bike ride or running, but exercise for me is sitting on the couch and eating Cheetos. That's just not how language works, right? We have to consistently apply the Word even in respect to God. God's shown us His holiness and created things so that we would know what it means that God is holy. Namely, that God is totally devoted to Himself and to His glory. That's what it means that God is holy. It means that God is set apart for His glory, totally devoted to Himself. And let's look at that definition. The first part of the definition says that God is set apart. And that's what we heard in Exodus 15.11. It says, Who is like you among the gods, O Yahweh? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? And Scripture confirms it. God does stand alone. Isaiah 45.5 says, I am Yahweh and there is no other. There is no God but Me. Hosea 11.9 He is God not man, the Holy One in your midst. So God's holiness does describe His awesome transcendence above all things, His infinite apartness. No one is like Him, but it also means a lot more than that, doesn't it? Because the rest of our definition, what is it? That He is totally devoted to Himself, His purposes, and His glory. Because God is the only God, He is therefore supreme over all things, isn't He? All things that exist in heaven and on earth, and there is nothing greater. The greatest kings of the earth have all had to bow their knee and recognize God's glory as the supreme, but there is no one greater than God to whom He could bow His knee. He is the only God, and there is no one greater. And since there is no one greater, It's only fitting that God would be devoted to Himself and to His glory above all things. 
because only he is infinitely worthy. That's what Revelation 4.11 says. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they exist and were created. Holiness is the most eminent of God's characteristics, so that he says, my name is holy. He is the holy one. And that's because God, in his holiness, what his holiness is, is his devotion to himself as the one true God, the only one worthy of glory. In God's holiness, his zeal for his glory is seen in statements like Isaiah 48, 11, My glory I will not give to another. And, and that just means that every action, every plan, every providence, his decision to create for the fall to happen, for redemption to happen, everything that God does in the world today is accomplishing his glory. Isn't that an encouragement to us? All of that, everything we see is accomplishing his glory. Because he is holy, he's absolutely devoted to himself and his glory. That's what God's holiness is. In our sinfulness as humans, we can be tempted to ask, isn't that prideful of God? Isn't that prideful of God, even selfish, to be totally devoted to his own glory? And we can answer that by saying two things. First, no, it's not pride or selfishness because God is actually worthy of all the glory we can give. He's actually worthy where we're not. But second, and, and this is the core of where we're going today, Second, God's holiness, His devotion to Himself and His glory is infinitely selfless and loving because by nature, Yahweh, our God, is a triune God. And that's our third point. The holiness of God is Trinitarian. We sang it, holy, holy, holy. God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. And I mentioned that God's holiness is the Mount Everest of Scripture. And we talk about holiness Within the Trinity, we are at the peak of the mountain. And there may be nothing greater in Scripture than this. It is the high point of God's revelation of Himself to us. And, and it's really beyond our full com comprehension, but we have to try. So here it goes. Holiness, God's devotion to Himself and His glory is seated in His eternal nature as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Scripture tells us that the triune God is eternally self-existent, three persons, one divine essence. And in His eternal existence the, as the Trinity, God is holy, totally devoted to Himself and His glory. What does that look like? It means that each person of the Trinity, each being fully God, is infinitely great and glorious. Right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all infinitely great and worthy of all glory. So that the only appropriate response of each member of the Trinity is to be entirely devoted to the glory of the others. The Son is fully devoted to the glory of the Father. The Father is holy, fully devoted to the glory of the Son. The Spirit is holy, fully devoted to the glory of the Father and the Son. God's holiness, His devotion to Himself is actually Trinitarian 
holiness, the devotion of each member of the Trinity to the others, to their glory. That's God's nature. That's beyond our invention, right? We couldn't come up with that. No human being could invent that reality. But many texts describe this. We should go go with me in your Bibles to John 17. John 17. I just want us to hear this in, expressed in Scripture. This devotion of each person of the Trinity to the glory of the other persons of the Trinity from Christ's own words in two passages. First in John 17, verses 1 through 5. Listen to Christ's prayer to the Father. And listen to this devotion to the glory between the Father and the Son. Verse 1. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished all the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. We can hear that, this devotion between the members of the Trinity to the glory of the others. The Father's eternal plan of redemption has at its center the glory of His Son, His beloved Son, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess Jesus is Lord. The Son, His devotion to the glory of the Father is seen as He carries out this plan of redemption, humbling Himself, becoming obedient even to the point of death on the cross, all to the praise and glory of the Father. And the Spirit's not absent in this. If you read through John 14 through 16, you see the Spirit's work everywhere and Jesus glorifies the Spirit. But in John 16, 14, if you just flip a page and look at this, Jesus says of the Spirit, He will glorify Me. That's the Spirit's work is to glorify Christ. And we could see that that's the same that is true for the Father. And Jesus says, for He will take of Mine and will disclose it to you. The Spirit's work is to show us Christ and His glory. And the Spirit's work is to show us the Father and His glory. So I hope we see this, that in the Trinity, among the three persons of the Godhead, with all three persons being infinitely glorious, this Trinitarian holiness is the only way that God could exist. The only adequate response of Himself to His own glory. What other response could the Son have to the eternally glorious Father and the Spirit but a devotion to fulfilling His purposes for His glory? What other response could the Father have to His precious Son but to sovereignly ordain all things so that Christ is glorified? What other response could be appropriate for the Spirit but to eternally exalt the Son and the Father by revealing him to the world, them to the world? And the answer is there's no other response that they could have. What we see there is God's infinite selflessness, isn't it? His love, Trinitarian love amongst the members of the Trinity. And this is who God is. He has eternally existed as the Holy One who is entirely devoted to His own glory, the Father, the Son, 
and the Holy Spirit. That should encourage us to dive deeper into thinking and meditating about who God is. That is our God. We need to know Him as He is. Holiness defines the triune God. This is the Mount Everest of who He is. His commitment to Himself and His glory throughout eternity and into eternity. We don't know God rightly unless we know Him in this way. Let's take a deep breath and go to our fourth heading. It's a little bit easier. And that's just the fact that all of God's attributes are holy. When we describe God, we often describe Him in terms of His attributes. And because all of His attributes are perfect, we often call them His perfections. But first and foremost among God's perfections is His holiness. Puritan Thomas Watson said that the holy, that holiness is the most sparkling jewel of God's crown. So why is holiness the brightest among God's attributes? And we would say that's true because all of God's attributes are marked by holiness. Theologian Herman Bavink said that God is holy in a comprehensive sense, in connection with every revelation that impresses humans with His deity. That's a confusing way to say that Holiness is comprehensively and inextricably connected to all of God's attributes. All of God's attributes then are always exercised in such a way that brings God the most glory. That's what it means that they're holy. All of God's attributes, that all of God's attributes are holy means that they are totally devoted to God and His glory. His love is holy love. It's always exercised in a way that brings Him glory. There's no weakness or stain or fault in God's love that would diminish His glory. His sovereignty and power are holy. And in the exercise of God's sovereign power, He never does anything that would contradict His righteousness. There's no evil in Him that He could do because that would diminish His glory. Isn't it comfortable knowing, comforting to know that in any situation, God's sovereign power is always exercised to bring Him glory. We could keep going down the list of God's attributes and see the same. His righteousness, His wisdom, His goodness, His mercy, all are holy. And God's holiness is at the center of all of His attributes. As both in their nature and expression, they are fully devoted to God's glory. There's no deficiency in God, is there? We can't say God is loving, but not in this. We can't say God is wise, but there's something He doesn't know. That would be to diminish His glory. No, they're perfect and perfectly upholding His glory. So just to summarize those last two points, when you think of holiness, that God is holy, what do you think of? Because what we should think of when we think of God as holy is that He is the triune, holy God, each member devoted to the glory of the others. And each of His attributes in everything that He does and is, it's holy. He's fully devoted to accomplishing His purposes and glory. And so when we think about God in, in that way, we must say with Exodus 15.11, Who is like you, O God, majestic in holiness? His very nature is defined as His burning devotion to Himself and to His glory. God is holy. But if God's holiness means He is 
fully, totally devoted to himself and his glory, then there's a major implication. God cannot let anyone diminish or attack his glory, can he? And that's our fifth heading. God can't allow any attack on his glory. And, and this is the heading that God's holiness demands a holy response to any and all sin. Because sin at its core is an attack on the glory of God. God's law is holy. It's designed to bring him glory. Jesus summed up the law in this way. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind. And you shall love your neighbor who is created in the image of God as yourself. Isn't that a law that would bring God all glory? And sin is a violation of this law. And it's therefore an attack on God's glory, an attempt to diminish it. Sin is saying to God, you are not worthy of all glory. I am, so I will not obey you. I will obey me. And if we want to talk about insurrection, that's in the news. True insurrection is your daily attempt to usurp God's authority and glory by your sin. That's what sin is. It's an attempt to steal God's glory for yourself and to put yourself on the throne. But God says in Isaiah 48.11, My glory I will not give to another. And in His holiness, His burning devotion to His own glory, God will and God must punish sin. To let sin against His glory go unpunished would be to compromise and diminish His glory. And God's holiness demands punishment adequate for the crime so that his glory is upheld. Just like a murder should result in the death penalty and speeding in a ticket, a sin against the eternal, infinite, holy glory of God demands an infinite, eternal punishment. And that's why hell is so severe. Because if we understand God's greatness, His glory, His holiness, and we think about what sin is as rebellion against that holiness, we start to understand the gravity of sin, its horrendous nature, and it's hard for us to comprehend a punishment that would be sufficiently equal to that crime of attacking God's glory until we open our Bibles and see what Christ tells us and describes to us in the Gospels that the only punishment worthy for sinners who offend His glory is nothing less than an eternity in the lake of fire, in outer darkness, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched, and they stay there suffering eternally for their sin against an eternal God. God's holiness is why hell is horrific. God is too holy to look upon sin, Isaiah 59.2. And He's zealous for the glory of His name. And sin is a rejection of God's glory in exchange for one's own glory. That's what we see in Romans 1, isn't it? The wrath of God is poured out against the unrighteousness of men who exchange the glory of the immortal God for a lie. The sin that God's wrath is poured out upon is an exchange of God's Ultimate glory for nothing. Don't you see how it is His holiness, His devotion to His glory that demands that outpouring of wrath on sinners? I will be holy. 
and I will be seen as holy. And he's totally justified in it because all the glory belongs to him. So the question for us today, for some of us, have you perfectly upheld the glory of God by perfectly keeping his law? Or have you trampled his glory underfoot by disregarding his righteous commands for your life? Scripture answers that question for us. There is no one righteous, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God's holiness, his devotion to his glory, demands that his wrath be poured out on you for your sin. God's holiness is why no one, none of us will ever be saved by our good deeds, by our works, because even the smallest sin demands an infinite eternal punishment, not because of the size of the sin, but because of the size and worth of the infinite, eternal glory of God against which that sin is an outright attack. And God cannot let that sin go unpunished. The moment we commit our first sin, we have assaulted God's glory and it only takes one violation to merit the eternal wrath of God in the lake of fire. He must punish every sin to uphold His glory. And that's sobering for us, isn't it? That's a sobering thought. Every thought, word, deed, action that is out of line with God's word is an offense against an eternally holy God. When we're confronted with God's holiness, our first response should be that of Isaiah in Isaiah 6 where he says, Woe is me, for I am ruined as we stand before God's holiness. There's good news. As sinners against the holy God, what can we do to escape His holy wrath? There's only one answer. This is our sixth point. We need a holy substitute. We need a holy substitute. Only a perfectly holy substitute can appease God's holy wrath. It's obvious that one sinner can't bear God's wrath for another. We're in the same boat, equally deserving God's wrath. We need a holy substitute. and. Under the Old Covenant, God's wrath was propitiated by uh, spotless, pure sacrifices. But in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, God tells us that Jesus is that spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is that holy substitute. The Scriptures call Him the Holy One of God. He's without spot or blemish. Think about His life. He came to earth and took on flesh and fully obeyed God. He perfectly upheld God's holiness. John 8.29, he says, I always do what pleases the Father. What you and I could never do, Jesus Christ has done. In John 17.4, prior to the crucifixion, he prayed to the Father saying, I glorified you on earth by accomplishing the work which you gave me to do so that even in his sacrificial death, he was holy unto God, accomplishing God's purposes and bringing God glory. The father's plan was that his precious son would die in the place of wretched sinners like you and me. And Christ obeyed the father, even to the point of a horrendous death on the cross. And all of God's wrath that was meant for us was poured out on Christ so that the very ones attempting to rob God of His glory and put ourselves on His throne would be forgiven of their rebellion against God and declared righteous 
with the very righteousness of Christ, which is imputed to us. So that there is now, now therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God's holy wrath, if you're a believer, has been satisfied and poured out entirely on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you believe in the Lord Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection, you will be saved. You will escape the wrath that God's holiness demands. But if you refuse to believe, if you refuse to believe in Christ, then there's no substitute. And God's holiness demands that he punish your sin. There's no other way. There's no escape. If you haven't already, you must turn to Christ for forgiveness. The Holy One died to grant you forgiveness and he stands ready to forgive. I just want us to, to take this a step further for us who are believers today. Christ's death didn't just accomplish our forgiveness and our justification, did it? Right? 1 Corinthians 1 says that Christ has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness, redemption, and sanctification. If, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, what that means is that Christ has made you holy to himself. He has set you apart for himself. As Hebrews 10.10 says, by God's will we have been sanctified, that is made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Christ through his blood makes us holy unto God. So inherent in his salvation is a new position as one who has been set apart for total devotion to God. His purposes and his glory. Titus 2.14 says it this way, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. Through his blood, Christ has made us holy. And in making us holy, he's made us totally devoted. This is our purpose to be totally devoted to God and his glory. That's what it means for us to be holy. To be holy doesn't mean just go to church on Sunday and try not to do bad things. It means to be totally consumed with the glory of God in every aspect of our lives. That is holiness. It's hating sin because it's an offense against the glory of the holy God. It's proclaiming God's excellencies to everyone so that in everything God is glorified. To be holy as God is holy is to be devoted to Him, to His purposes, and to His glory. Does that accurately describe your life and the desires of your heart? To be set apart by God in this way, to be devoted to Him for His glory? We're all in the process of ongoing growth and holiness, but if you're a Christian, you have been made holy. Holiness isn't something extra it's what you were saved to. To be holy as God is holy, totally devoted to Him and His glory. I want to bring this full circle. I know we're ready for that. Is holiness, full devotion to God and His glory, the dominant pursuit of your life? Because if you are holy, if that's the case, if you're fully and totally devoted to God and His glory, when persecution arises, you'll be able to stand firm, won't you? You will be uncompromisingly devoted to God and His glory. When the world demands your silence 
on the sin of abortion or homosexuality or transgenderism, you will speak out boldly in love for God and your neighbor because your priority is not to save your own skin. It is a burning desire for the glory of God that His truth and His glory be exalted. And when your choice is either to sin or to suffer, you'd rather die than to sin because you know that sin merits an eternal punishment in the lake of fire for its heinous offense to the glory of God. And something that weighty and knowing the incredible weight of Christ's holy sacrifice, you would never want to infringe on His holiness and offend God's glory. Don't we see that only a full devotion to God the, whole, the full devotion to God of a holy life, that's the only thing that will give us the spiritual backbone to stand in persecution. Peter is right. If we're to stand firm in persecution, what we need is to be holy with the same burning devotion that God has for Himself. We are to be holy as He is holy. We must all daily pursue a higher holiness than we have today, a deeper devotion to God and His glory. And we do that by daily, moment by moment, examining our lives and asking, how can I obey God more today so that He gets all the glory? That wholehearted devotion to God's glory in obedience to Him, that isn't legalism, that's holiness. And don't let anyone ever tell you otherwise. One final thing that we have to see when persecution comes, the easiest thing for us is going to be to shrink back, to run and hide, to not come to church, to not fellowship, and especially to not profess Christ publicly. But turn with me to Isaiah 44. We'll close with this. God's holiness, God's holiness gives us boldness to stand. Look at Isaiah 44, verses 6 through 8. It says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last and there is no God beside me. Who is like me? That's God exalting His holiness. What does that result in for us? Look at verse 8. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Have I not long since denounced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? Or is there any other rock I know of none? God's holiness, His devotion to His glory becomes our strength in trial. This holy God devoted to His glory and we are His servants, His witnesses. What can man do to us if we're servants of the Holy God? Let's pray and, and ask the Lord's help to take this to heart. Father, thank You for the time together. Thank You for the listening ear of all of us here today and, and extending this time. Pray that as we're thinking about You and about Your glory and about Your holiness, we would be struck with awe and that we would be strengthened by Your Spirit to think about You as You are, to not have light thoughts of You but deep, weighty thoughts of Your holiness to understand and know You as You are. And then as we meditate on You, to seek that same devotion to You in our, and to Your glory in our lives. And that we would look to the Lord Jesus as that example of daily pursuing Your 
the holiness that you require of us. Thank you, Lord. Strengthen us, we pray in Christ's name.